Hey there, welcome to another edition of LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are talking about surprising and unexpected conversations with Dylan Marin. He's the guy behind the podcast, Conversations with People Who Hate Me. And here's what he does, basically. He goes and finds mean comments that were written about him or other people online. And then he calls the people up who wrote the mean stuff to figure out what exactly is going on with them. Uh, We're also going to talk to musician Brittany Davis, who will explain how, as a blind person, music became their first language, and also why they just started getting into the music of Pearl Jam. Plus, we've got your listener responses to this week's question, what's the most unexpected conversation you've ever had? It's going to be a great show. Here's the thing, though. The stations, they expect us to take a break for the news right here. So we're going to do that. Then we'll be back with this week's Livewire. Stick around. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going very well. You are in Tennessee as we record this? I am. I'm on a mountaintop in Tennessee, just like Davy Crockett when he was a baby. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that suits you with all that uh, Southern charm that you're always kind of exuding. Are you ready for a little station location identification examination? Did Davy Crockett kill a bar when he was only three? (laughs) And you use the proper pronunciation of bar. (laughs) All right, here is how station location identification examination works. I'm going to talk about a place in America where Livewire is on the radio. Elena's got to guess where I'm talking about. Okay, this place is home to the world's largest bear subspecies. It can exceed 1,500 pounds. They're only found in this place and on surrounding islands. And the way that they got there was... Brown bears migrated to this area about 12,000 years ago, and then sea level rose at the end of the Ice Age, and then these bears became an isolated population. Kodiak bears. Kodiak, Alaska, where we're on KODK radio in Kodiak, Alaska. Good (laughs) thinking, Elena. I know my bars. (laughs) You sure do. All right. uh, Should we get to the show? Let's do it. All right. Take it away. From PRX, it's Livewire. This week, podcaster and writer Dylan Marin. Debate is the only word we have for conversation across difference. So we think that the only way we can actually communicate with someone that we disagree with is to fight them. And music from Brittany Davis. 
because there is sound, there is life for me and from me. And all of it has its own purpose and it all has different dimensions. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of LifeWire, Luke Burbank. Thank you so much, Elena. Thanks to everybody tuning in this week from all over the country, including Kodiak, Alaska. Of course, we asked those listeners, our listeners, a question. We asked, what's the most unexpected conversation you've ever had? And we're going to read those responses coming up a little bit later on in the show. First, though, it's time for the best news we heard all week. This, of course, is our little reminder at the top of the show. There is still, just have to trust us on this, some good news happening out there in the world. We find it for you. Elena, what's the best news you heard all week? Oh, I love this news from Indianola, Iowa, population 16,000. You know, if you probably are super aware of this, over the past decade or so, Quite a few small town newspapers, maybe the vast majority of them, have been bought up by these big media conglomerates and mm-hmm. they lose their staff, they lose a lot of their heft, and they really lose the local attention that makes small town newspapers what I consider to be like one of the most important parts of American life. Yes, absolutely. It's a tragedy in this country because it is extremely hard to be profitable in the print newspaper business. And so you have, yeah, this consolidation and conglomeration that takes so much of the specific local flavor out of these things. It's a real bummer. For sure. But uh, good news is that opposite thing is happening in Indianola, Iowa, where the Record Herald had been bought out by a huge media company and a couple, a married couple that had both worked there. They had a shared 50 years of experience at the Record Herald, Amy Duncan and Mark DeVitt. They first started kind of like a local news website to kind of compensate for the fact that their Mm -hmm. newspaper had closed. They had to like go from house to house and help people understand how to get the news on their iPads. (laughs) But Gannett, the media juggernaut that owns a lot of these papers Mm -hmm. now, has recently made offers to certain small town outfits where the small towns can buy the papers back. And since Amy Duncan and Mark DeVitt had already spent all this time, you know, A, at the original paper, and B, doing this great digital work, they bought the paper and they're going to give it a shot. So that means people who know this community well are going to be reporting for this community. There are going to be tons of opportunities for that kind of discourse. And if you're within a 6,000-mile radius of Indianola, Iowa, (laughs) maybe you want to subscribe to keep this paper going. That's so awesome. Yeah. Well, going from... Uh, kind of hyper-local news to an actual world record, Elena. The best news that I heard about this week, this actually happened a little while ago, but it just came onto my radar, is the story of a guy named Chad Kempel, who is the father of quintuplets, which, Whoa. if you're not great at math, like uh, like me, I had to look up, that's five. Five babies, a quint. Mm-hmm. And he decided he wanted to run a half marathon pushing his... <laughs> Five. He actually has seven children. These are just the five that came out at the same time. So he decided to run a half marathon pushing the quints. They're four years old now. Between the, the stroller they were in 
and the kids, that's 240 extra pounds. Oh my gosh. That Chad's pushing along for a half marathon, which of course is uh, 13.1 miles, half <gasps> of a regular marathon. He did this in Oakland, by the way, last month. And uh, he wanted to sort of teach people or uh, remind people that anything is possible. So he had this inspirational sign that said anything is possible. And um, he, his wife, who he credits with, rightfully so, by the way, with doing the hard work as far as these babies are concerned, right? Like anything he does with, uh, you know, physical activity around them, he says, yeah, this, is, this pales in comparison to what my wife went through carrying these quintuplets. But his wife was riding on a bike next to him. And he, it was really hot. Mm. And it was a lot of children to be pushing. So he almost quit a couple of times and she was like encouraging him from the bike and Aww. he managed to get through it. He did the whole thing in two hours and 19 minutes, which is really not bad, actually. That's not bad. <laughs> considering what he was doing. There's a couple of things about this. One, anytime I'm out for a jog, in fact, this just happened, I'm not kidding you, this morning, I was out for a little run in my neighborhood in Portland and I was feeling a little tired as I was on my way back, and I saw a dad pushing twins in a stroller, and I thought, okay, if he can do that, I can, with without any encumbrance, I can finish this little jog. So I'm inspired by people who are out there pushing their kids around in strollers. The other thing is, the report is that his kid's main response to him pushing them in the half marathon was to yell at him to go faster. <laughs> and there's a photo of him with this, this stroller is wild. It's like so long and kind of, it almost looks like a, like a bobsled or something, you know, you'd get in. Or like a row of grocery carts being yes, returned exactly. to the corral. Actually, that's a good, that's a good description. <laughs> this guy is just working so hard to make this happen and set this record. But the kids in the photo look deeply bored. <laughs> like, which I feel like is parenthood in a nutshell. Like, that is what being a parent is. Doing something exceptionally hard and your kids completely not realizing how hard it was. Breaking a global record. I was just yes. thinking about how I just got out of an airport and I know that my suitcase weighed 26 pounds and I had to drag it for, I don't know, about a quarter of a mile. And it was a tenth the weight of that stroller. And I was just like, Ugh, I quit. Yeah. <laughs> I quint. I, I quit. So knowing, by the way, that the experience of parents is universal, no matter what we do, our kids are going to probably not be that impressed. That is the best news, weirdly, <laughs> that I heard this week. All right, let's get our first guest on over. He is the host and creator of the critically acclaimed podcast, Conversations with People Who Hate Me. It's sort of a social experiment that started with him calling up people who'd left mean comments online about him. And he wanted to find out kind of like what their deal was and try to make a human connection with them if he could. That podcast has now turned into a book by the same name. Dylan Marin is also the voice of Carlos on the hit podcast, Welcome to Night Vale. And he created this really interesting project, Every Single Word, which is a video series that he edited down popular films so that the final product features only the words spoken by people of color in the film. And it is quite revealing, I'll tell you that. Uh, Dylan joined us on stage at Revolution Hall in Portland back in June. Take a listen to this. Hi, guys. Dylan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Let's actually start with every single word, because I think that's one of the things that really put you on the Internet's radar to yes. a large degree. How did that idea come to you to edit these films down? Um, 
so I was like acting at the time. That was my entry into the creative forum. And um, I was noticing that auditions, so in casting notices, I don't know if you're familiar, um, but there's like a description of mm -hmm. the character, right? And so uh, there will be one character that describes everything about them. It gives you their biographical data, what they feel, how vulnerable they are, like their relationship to empathy with others. And then there's others that's like a deli worker, hmm. um, five lines, and then it will list every non-white race. <laughs> and so it's like you understand that these long flowing casting notices were for, uh, for white characters. And so I wanted to kind of identify the whiteness of Hollywood films, but in a way that would ideally bring more people to the table. And so I disguised it mm. as a supercut series, right? It's like this shareable, mm. bite-sized form of internet detritus that we're all familiar with. <laughs> and um, it was, uh, it cloaked in that was a conversation about representation on screen. I have to say it was shocking to me as a white person mm. to see a film that I love like Moonrise Kingdom yeah. that I've watched. And, you know, I mean, as a white person, you're legally obligated to love anything Wes Anderson yes, does. Yes, 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 yes. So it never occurred to me because of my lived experience how little representation there is in that film. It's like less than 10 seconds. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think to explain, I was picking films that were um, told universal stories and were cast as white by default. So the Lord of the Rings trilogy, all three movies uh, came down to, I think, 47 seconds. That's the trilogy. But those are short films and anyway. And those are tiny, tiny films. So that's, they're, I mean, that yeah. can, we have to also put yeah, that I mean, in the they're, record. They're TikToks, basically. Yeah, right. Yeah, vines. So vines, thank you. A classic. Um, TikTok vintage. Um. Well, I, I was just, I was saying it was, it was surprising to me to, to realize how many of these films that I've just watched, and again, because of kind of my perspective, it didn't occur to me that there was such little representation of people of color until I was watching your series. Yeah, I think the complicated thing as a person of color is, you also take this for granted too, right? I think like the problem wasn't that I didn't like these movies. The problem was that I loved all these movies that I was editing down. And so I think what the project asks, I sound like an artist statement, you know, like print and what, what this project interrogates um, <laughs> um, is, you know, what are you not noticing and what are we subconsciously taking in? What messaging are we subconsciously taking in? If we watch, uh, yes, okay, claps. Yes. Make it slow, slow, slow build through yes. what I'm saying. Um, but I, I think what it what it's saying, it's like, what are we letting in? What are we subconsciously understanding it if we are baking into our brains? You know, movies are essentially empathy machines. I think that's a Roger Ebert quote. That's how we understand ourselves. That's how we understand our place in humanity. And what is it saying for people of color who are seeing avatars continuously um, relegated to the sidelines? Yeah. And so, again, it's just a supercut series. And so I think that project was what helped me learn how to take a big idea and express it in an online format. Another thing you did that got a lot of attention were these unboxing videos yeah. where you unboxed abstract concepts like masculinity yeah. and ableism. Yes. And uh, that seems to also be when the trolls really started to come out. Was that your experience? You know, every single word I wasn't in those videos. Those were edits of popular films. And when I started making videos with my face in them and those videos started 
becoming really popular and I was coming from a very progressive perspective. Yes. And, and I think context is important about this, which is that this was 2016, 2017, and this was on Facebook. So this is like right when we were experiencing this national public square on Facebook, this is when Facebook video was popping off. And I think that is what set the stage for what came next. Well, what I'm really interested in is what you talk about in this book and on the podcast, which is when you started reaching out to some of these people that were posting really mean things about you. Uh, so we're going to hear about that in a moment. First, though, we've got to take this quick break here on Live Wire. We're talking to Dylan Marin. His new book is Conversations with People Who Hate Me, 12 Things I Learned from Talking to Internet Strangers. Back with more Live Wire in just a moment. <laughs> Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners... Uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we, we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including... Uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank. Here with Elena Passarello, we're talking to Dylan Marin. Uh, his uh, new book is Conversations with People Who Hate Me, 12 Things I Learned from Talking to Internet Strangers. So you were producing a series of different videos, taking on some pretty serious topics, but doing it with a kind of a, uh, a I think, a fun and somewhat light approach. Mm -hmm. But this also was drawing a lot of attention from people who disagreed with what you were saying when you are saying, hey, we're too ableist as a society, or masculinity is out of control, yeah. things like that. So what were people actually saying to you that was negative? What were the kind of posts that you were getting? Um, you know, a lot of it was homophobic. Mm. I think a lot of it, yeah, took swipes at my masculinity, which just to be clear, we were never angling for <laughs> alpha. You know, like we're going for delta, we're going for zeta, we're yeah. going for bottom of the barrel here. Yes, <laughs> zeta male in the house. Um, I think it was like those typical jabs, you know, I think the common terms of 
cuck, you know, mm-hmm. a, a man who has been cheated on by his wife, which to quote Twitter, you have to laugh, you know, <laughs> the, uh, to, to call me a cuck is like, I would love for whatever woman I was married to, to cheat on me. Right. I encourage it. Um, I hope she cheats on me that she needs a strong sense of self. Um, <laughs> But the people are coming at you with all this stuff that they think is insulting you, but the things that they value yeah. are not the things that you personally value in the same way. Yeah, I mean, that's 100% true. I also think it's like I had to develop the sense of humor about it because that was the only coping mechanism I had. And so I would do the traditional things that we all do, like make fun of their typos, and that makes you feel amazing because you are the better person and they misspelled there. And that's it, we're getting Trump out of office, you corrected a typo, you know? Um, And I'm obviously saying that like joking now, but like you kind of felt that, (laughs) you know, you're like, got him, you know, that's a dunk. And then I think that that didn't feel like it was doing anything. And I, I also kind of realized that I was just essentially uh, fighting fire with fire. So I wanted to find an alternative. So uh, one of the people that you reached out to, they write about a book with someone named Josh. Yeah. And Josh had posted something about how uh, being gay was a sin, mm-hmm. and all of your opinions were basically wrong. Yeah. How do you go about establishing contact with somebody who has gone on the internet just for the purposes of saying mean things about you? Well, Josh was uh, the very first person I ever spoke to on the phone, and I would say uh, he fully cracked open this project for me. Mm. I was receiving hundreds of messages like this, and I received Josh's DM, and I I had developed this like unexpected coping mechanism for myself where because this was Facebook, this is where Facebook comes into play. It's not YouTube, it's not Twitter, right? It's like this is a platform where you have already been encouraged to upload every single picture ever taken of you. You're tagged in photos. So I could click on my detractor's profile pictures and I was taken to a partial family tree. I would know what their aunt's favorite band was, you know? And it's like, I would use these like disparate details to construct this full three-dimensional backstory as a coping mechanism so that I could convince myself that these were human beings that could be reached. And I bring that up with Josh because Josh was really just like, when I clicked on his profile, sure, I was met with all the memes that I expected that, you know, indicated that we supported different political ideologies, Hmm. Um, but, but also real vulnerability. He was a senior in high school at the time, and he was talking about loneliness and isolation. And if anything, that was something that I related to, you know, like if I had Facebook in that time and I was the last year to not have Facebook in high school and thank God for that. I'm so serious because like, I think we should like normalize drafts of ourselves and understand what is and isn't okay. And to have a permanent record of that is like challenging for all humans, I think, but especially for young people. And so he was sharing things that I'm like, oh, I would have written that I was lonely on a Friday night. You know, one thing led to another, um, and I don't know if you want to go into full detail. It's a much longer story that is available in the book. There you go. Um, (laughs) But one thing led to another, and we jumped on the phone. 
And that phone call was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. I was so used to like sharpening my dagger for my videos, you know, like taking aim at the other side through a lens. And it's like, honey, you're not, you're just talking to your people, (laughs) you know? And talking to him felt like I was actually building a bridge and doing something that I hadn't done before. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking to Dylan Marin about his new book, Conversations with People Who Hate Me. Um, I've heard uh, audio from this conversation with Josh, and it's really powerful because you, you do you hear somebody who's dealing with what they're dealing with. Yeah. And as is probably often the case, it's hard for someone to continue to be cruel when they're talking on the phone with oh. the person who's the object of their cruelty. Completely. Like that other stuff, my guess is, falls away pretty quickly. But is that common with the people that you've now dealt with and communicated with who have been very critical of you is that this is them kind of projecting their pain on someone else? Yes and no. Like, I I think we love clinging to this idea that hurt people hurt people, Mm. which I think is true a lot of the time, not all the time. You know, like, Mm. I think the ease with which we can communicate online and take jabs at people actually disproves this, like, 100% hurt people hurt people notion because, like, sometimes they're not hurt, you know? And like, I I don't use the word trolls anymore because I don't think it's an accurate word. And I also think that we must collectively move on from this very false understanding that it is, and this is in quotes, but like lonely guys who live in their mother's basement because one, if they're lonely, that's just relatable. If they live in their mom's basement, I lived with my mom after college, deal with it. You know, things are expensive, but that's our like way to soothe ourselves into saying it's like, oh, it's those people over there who do this when these platforms actually encourage that. To get back to your lovely and brilliant question, I took us on a tangent. Um, I think sometimes it's projected pain But I will say, always, people felt so profoundly different on the phone than they did in a text medium because you don't actually see that the person you're talking to is human. And the one thing that I was discovering over and over again, and this is when I was talking one-on-one to people and when I moved into the moderated format when I started hosting calls between people, is that like so many times the honest answer is like, I just never thought you were going to read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And on on the one hand, there's justifiable criticism there. That's like, well, that's a human. Of course they're going to read it. And on the other hand, these platforms are so good at making us feel anonymous and invisible and like mm-hmm. we don't matter and like we're just particles floating in space. Mm-hmm. So who can kind of blame them for thinking that this like missive is never going to reach its supposed target? You know? I'm wondering, as somebody who's spent a lot of time looking at this world and being now a part of this world, because another thing you do with the podcast is you, like you said, you'll now get two people who've had some kind of a disagreement going, and you'll kind of moderate yeah. uh, a, um, a conversation there. I mean, is, do you have any reason to be optimistic about like the way that we treat each other online? Going, I mean, is there any hope for this, or is this just sort of going to continue to become even more and more toxic as a place? Yes and no is the most honest answer I can give. The, like, experience I have on the phone calls that I've been lucky enough to be part of 
has shown me that people are hungry for connection with each other. People are eager to get to know people, to show themselves to other people, to build these bridges that we are chastised for even bringing up that word because it's too chuggy. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, And at core, people are hungry for that. People are excited for it. But that's when you get them onto the phone. I cannot even begin to tell you how hard this podcast is to produce because so many people are so hesitant to do this understandably so right like there are some people who don't have the energy to build these bridges of radical empathy with their detractors I fully understand that but I also feel hopeless when I spend more than five minutes on Twitter because Mm -hmm. Sure, we have to say that, yes, necessary information can travel very fast and very far. And that's absolutely true. And it's absolutely good as a bullhorn for a video of, say, something like police brutality, right? It's like we have to get this message across and no one's going to believe it if they don't see it. But all of the other conversation that happens is so gamified that it's more that we are all, and I very much include myself in this, we are all playing this game for points where you get more dopamine hits Mm -hmm. by dunking on someone than actually having a conversation. When you brought up games, it made me think of this thing in your book too that I never categorized it this way, but so many things that we think of as conversations or are debates yeah. and debates can't be conversations because debates are sports. Oh, completely. How, how did you come up with that concept? Um, I think it's from, uh, not understanding sports and always being <laughs> terrified of sports and being, let's be real bad, at, bad at them. <laughs> but I think like that, that came up for me when I started this project and even still now, if people know the concept of the show, they'll praise me for hosting a debate show. Right. Even though I've been vocal that it's not a debate show and At first, you know, I was kind of like annoyed by that. It's like, this is conversation, you know, like, but then I realized debate is the only word we have for conversation across difference. So we think that the only way we can actually communicate with someone that we disagree with is to fight them, is to battle them. And I think debates work when there's a shared pool of facts Mm -hmm. and debate as a concept falls apart when we can't agree on the facts we're there to debate on. So, like, it comes up with the climate... Yeah. It it comes up with the climate change discussion, or let's be real, debate, which is, like, if, let's say, your position is climate change mostly comes from oil companies and not, you know, unrecycled plastic bottles, and then the other person's position is climate change doesn't exist, there's no debate there. I think what I learned is really ways, and what the book is really about, is ways to foster like meaningful conversation and conscious conversation. It's a tightrope to walk, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm very careful to not sloppily be like, just talk to each other and the world will be good. You know, it's like that's unhealthy for a lot of people. And so I think we're, we're having this huge backlash against kindness and bridge building because like I said it's a little too cheesy for people and for very good reason it's kindness is absolutely not a substantial 
um, political platform, right? Well, a like, lot of people who have been marginalized feel like completely uh, the advice being just be nicer to oh, the people who no, have that, been oppressing you. They yes. are like, that's not really how we should right. be fixing this. And I think that, yes, absolutely. And I think that's in fact harmful to many marginalized people. But just because some people very understandably can't walk across certain bridges doesn't mean you shouldn't if you feel that you have the ability to. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's it's really... I think this work is for people who have the energy to do it and not for the people who don't. It's not a solve. Empathy alone is not going to cure everything that ails us. Mm -hmm. But I think it is a necessary ingredient that the gamified space of social media is making us forget. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all that and more in this great new book from Dylan, Conversations with People Who Hate Me. Dylan Marin, thanks for coming on Thank Livewire. Thank you for having me. That was Dylan Marin right here on Livewire. We recorded that at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon back in June. Dylan's book, Conversations with People Who Hate Me, is available now. Hey, special thanks this episode to Megan Millard of Portland, Oregon, and Brett Sherman of Happy Valley, Oregon. Megan and Brett are part of the Livewire member community and generously support our show with a donation each month, which we are very thankful for because it's literally how we're able to keep doing the show. No donations from people like Megan and Brett, no Livewire. So thank you, Megan and Brett, for keeping the show going. This is Livewire. Of course, each week we like to ask the Livewire listeners a question. Uh, we were inspired by Dylan Marin's podcast about kind of unexpected, possibly tense conversations. And so we asked the listeners, what's the most unexpected conversation you've ever had? Elena has been collecting up those responses. Um, what are you seeing? Well, speaking of Dylan, this is from a Dylan. I think it's okay. a different Dylan who says, I had a conversation with my professor in which he told me there was no future in my major. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's always a, a hard thing when the person who's teaching you the thing that you're learning is like, yeah, kid, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> I was a, you know, I was a drama major in college up until probably my junior year and we were doing some kind of acting presentation. And I, I will just say some of the monologues were, I thought, less than stellar. Mm -hmm. Some were great, but there was a real range. But the response was the same. Everyone was so effusive and so supportive Aww. of every monologue, even the ones that were great. I thought, wait a minute, are we <laughs> all deluding ourselves? I was like, I thought mine went pretty well. Everyone seemed excited, but they're also being pretty excited about some ones that seemed less great. And so I said, I got to switch my major to some, a real tried and true moneymaker journalism. Oh yeah. So. <laughs> I know. I was thinking about all the majors and minors that I've had over my several degrees and none of them have futures in them. French, <laughs> anthropology, literature, creative writing. So uh, me and Dylan and you, Luke, we can form a club. <laughs> Here we are. What's another unexpected conversation that one of our listeners had? Bill says, I was once speaking to a friend about our passions, and we eventually got to talking about being patriotic. And that's when he told me he only wears American-made clothes. And then we had an interesting conversation about the day he discovered that his American flag t-shirt was made in Bangladesh. <laughs> 
Wow. You see that sometimes, something that seems extremely, quote unquote, patriotic, and then you Mm -hmm. turn it over and you find out it was made somewhere far away from here. When I was a kid growing up in the 80s, I feel like there were a lot of ads extolling the virtues of buying American. Oh, yeah, for sure. Just seemed like as a kid, there was always ads and it was like yeah. people were wearing jeans and turning the you know waistband out. It said like made in America. And it was like, yeah. a, you know, lots of waves of grain and flags fluttering. Like it was, it seemed like a real priority. <laughs> Maybe there's so few now that like there's no point in advertising it. Right. The like consortium of American manufacturers, there's not enough of them to put in for the TV ad buys that I was seeing as a kid. That's right. One more unexpected conversation before we get to our next guest. This is a great one about, uh, I guess, about taste. Jay says, one time a friend and I were talking about our favorite movies, and I started things off by saying my favorite movie was The Hateful Eight, and my friend told me that he unironically loves The Bee Movie. The Jerry Seinfeld one? (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I I think both of those are interesting choices for favorite movies, and I would love to see a mashup of the two. I will say that's a real pretty hard pivot between The Hateful Eight and Daisy Domergoo, <laughs> that really memorable performance by Jennifer Jason Lee. Uh, and then you're just going right over to Jerry Seinfeld playing a, a bee. That reminds me when uh, David tried to show me that scary movie Halloween and I got so scared and he was like, I knew you were going to get scared. So I also rented this movie. This is back when you rented movies. And the, mm-hmm. the chaser movie he had rented for me was Lady and the Tramp. So we went that, from Halloween to Lady at the Tramp. <laughs> that's when you know you're with the right person. Amen. He's just like, and he's at the Blockbuster or the mm-hmm. Redbox or whatever service y'all were using, just anticipating, I'm going to need, we're going to need a palate cleanser after the scary movie. I'm so afraid of those. One time the, uh, there was a scary movie, it just, the opening shot was of a doll and I was like, turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you to everyone who wrote in responses to our listener question. We've got another one for next week's show, uh, which we will reveal at the end of today's episode, so stick around for that. In the meantime, this is, of course, Livewire. Our next guest is a genre-breaking musician and producer from Seattle. Born blind, Brittany Davis's musical journey began when they realized they could play piano by ear. And by the age of 13, they were recording their own music. Brittany is now signed to Loose Groove Records, which is the Seattle label co-founded by Pearl Jam guitarist Stone Gossard, and uh, their debut EP, I Choose to Live, was released just this year. Brittany Davis, welcome to Livewire. Yay! Thank you. (laughs) So excited to get to talk to you. I've been hearing all about you uh, for a while now. I'm curious, uh, when did you start writing music? I began writing music really young. I started playing piano at the age of two and started kind of writing my own songs at four mm. and five. Wow. And just, uh, what are those songs about when you're four or five? Like uh, the popsicle uh, truck they're mostly <laughs> They're mostly instrumental. Okay. <laughs> but to me, they were about a lot of things. I can't remember now because... <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> yeah. But everything is music to me. So I guess everything was a song. <laughs> Uh, Did I read correctly that you could actually play bird songs on the piano when you were really young? Yes. (laughs) So how would that work? You would hear a robin or something, and then you could come in and approximate it on the piano. Yeah, you hear those little little birds. (laughs) (laughs) And you just play it, you know. Now, uh, as a person who's blind, uh, I've, it sounds like you've always had a really strong connection to sound. I, I read that you said it, sound is light mm. to you. What do you mean by that? Sound is light. Silence is darkness. Mm. 
I mean that because there is sound, there is life for me and from me. Mm. And all of it has its own purpose and it all has different dimensions. The same way that different intensities of light can give you different, you know, perceptions of things, the way that it bends, mm-hmm. the way that it shifts, you know, like if it's a shadow, you know, you still need light for that. Right. Mm. So the different sonic dimensions are just the same, you know, dimensions as light, you know. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, there was a, a little study done. It was like people who are born blind, their visual cortex is actually stimulated um, when they read Braille by touch Mm. or when they hear things Mm. by sound. So a lot of the times it's like we're, we're seeing two times, you know, you know, yeah, because that's how we see. So, you know, even though we don't have the visual organ, we have the most powerful organ, I believe is the brain. The mind Mm -hmm. Mm. is just the dimension of the brain. Mm -hmm. So, that's why I say that sound is light because it is a dimension mm-hmm. and it requires dimensions in order for it to work. Same as light. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm, my guess would be that as a kid growing up, sound and music and song was just vitally important to you. I mean, what was that? What did it mean to you as a young person? Well, I always like to say that music was my first language. It played a role in everything that I felt um, emotionally, sometimes like different scents, things that you would smell or things that you would touch, different textures, had different notes, had different, you know, mm. tonal scales. Of course, I didn't know nothing about music theory back then, and I'm still learning now because <laughs> I wasn't trained. <laughs> but I've had beautiful mentors and people come in and teach me things and help me navigate the landscape of music, but the language was always mine. I, I think something that's kind of funny is that you're signed to Loose Groove Records, which was founded by one of the guys in Pearl Jam, Stone Gossard, yes. but you were not really like a Pearl Jam head <laughs> before <laughs> no. you got signed. Have no. You, do you have to now listen to Pearl Jam because <laughs> the, the label you're on was founded by one of the Pearl Jam people? No. Um, I love it, though. Oh, really? I I listen to it, you know, because it's one of those things where you get curious. Mm -hmm. And every side of music is kind of a side of me. So it's like, yeah, we need the the goofies. We need the, the sillies. We need the dark and punchy and grungy. We need the too fast to stop. (laughs) <laughs> having to having stopped since three in the morning, still going type of music. We need it all because that's the same thing with language. You have things that, you know, that are good and, and, and that are pure, but then you also have those things, which is like, okay, he's, hmm. he's gone off the deep end. He's cussing. He's using all kind of colorful language. <laughs> and, you know, it's very important to be able to express oneself in all facets. And so that's why, you know, I listen to Pearl Jam. I'm I'm getting into a little bit of rock and roll. I'm starting to get into some Neil Young. I'm getting into some Jimi Hendrix. Mm-hmm. I'm loving me some Jimi Hendrix Well, right being now. that you're Seattle in Seattle again. now, I think you, you know, you're like legally required yeah. to get into Jimi <laughs> Hendrix, right? <laughs> I love the guy though, man. Yeah. Can't get enough. Mm. You know, something that I read in an interview with you that would have never occurred to me uh, was that because you're blind, 
you have to basically kind of decide who you're going to trust about an outfit that you might be wearing in like a video or for a performance. <laughs> like right now, the listeners can't see, but you have this beautiful yellow head wrap on and matching shirt and some pearls. You look great. Mm-hmm. Thank but you. But you said sometimes you get conflicting information from people <laughs> and like you have to decide who you're going to go with. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, what, what I call interprojection because I had to project from the inside out. Um, what I want to represent because people around me have to see that in mm-hmm. everything that I do so that they know what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. Because if they can't see it, they can't, they don't know it. Cause mm-hmm. I can't show them. I can't go. I want to look like name archetype. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can only say that I like the materials that feel like this mm-hmm. or the fit, you know, as yeah. far as how tight or how loose something is, how breathable it is. That's what I'm trying to say. The mm-hmm. breadth of a of an outfit. How much room do I want in the outfit? Do I want a skin tight? You know, I can't say I want a skin tight like so-and-so. Mm-hmm. Because they would understand that, of course. But I don't know that because I've never seen so-and-so. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's like you have to trust in yourself to be vulnerable and say, I really like patent leather or I really like soft cotton materials that that remind me of home that remind me of Africa that remind me of earth you know you're listening to live wire from PRX I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello we are talking to musician Brittany Davis but we've got to take a quick break stay with us though we will be back with much more including a song from Brittany so don't go anywhere Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello and musician Brittany Davis. Can we uh, hear a little bit about the song that you're going to uh, perform today? Uh, what, what's it called and, and what's the story of how it came about? The song that I'm going to be performing for you today is called Loud Loud World because the world in which I exist can really get overwhelming. Mm. It can get loud. It can get disturbing. It can become overstimulating because I listen to it so much. You know, we say this thing all the time. We say, would you just listen? <laughs> you know, but what people don't understand a lot of the time is that I listen more than I want to. <laughs> and sometimes it has a, a profound effect on the way that I process things. Everything has to be right. It has to taste right, smell right, feel right, sound right. It got to have all of these different facets to it. There's a depth of understanding that comes through my listening. And I wanted to write a song that inspired people to really look at some of the characteristics they assign to visually impaired folks and our ability to hear. Like, we can hear just like anybody else, but we still suffer and and we, we're still 
impacted emotionally by the things that we hear sometimes, Mm -hmm. the same way as anyone else would be. Mm -hmm. But it also comes to a place where we have to accept the fact that we're different and we're only human. And that's one of the biggest messages in this song is that though I'm blind, I'm not a superhero. I'm Hmm. just me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's hear that song. This is Brittany Davis here on Livewire.
all seem so loud I wish I could turn it all down And even though I cannot see Doesn't mean I'm in some alternate reality Cause I am only human I am only human See I try my best Like everyone else And I'm no superhero I'm just myself And I In this loud, loud world. Brittany Davis, right here on Livewire. Thank you again, uh, Brittany, for taking the time today. We really appreciate you. Thank you, Livewire. This has been great. That was Brittany Davis, right here on Livewire, their EP. I Choose to Live is out now. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's episode. We are going to be talking to podcast host and writer Nicole Perkins about her latest book, Sometimes I Trip on How Happy We Could Be. It's an essay collection about a whole bunch of things, including what Niles Crane from Frasier taught her about romance (laughs) and sexuality. It's another one of those books, Elena. There's racks of them at the Barnes & Noble. (laughs) We're also going to talk to two-time Oscar-nominated filmmaker Lucy Walker about this extraordinary documentary that she created called Bring Your Own Brigade. We're back in wildfire season. Um, Although, as is pointed out in the film, wildfire season is now more or less a perpetual state for many parts of the country and the world. Lucy made this really incredible film about that topic in California. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to hear some music from Hamilton, Broadway star. Have you heard of it? Uh, Joshua Henry will join us and play a song. And as always, we're going to be looking to get your answers to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the listeners for next week's show? What song lyric best describes your life? Oh, wow. Hopefully not, oh, well, whatever, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a good one, yeah. Which, by the way, is inspired by next week's guest, Nicole Perkins. Uh, She writes in her memoir how her parents would send messages to each other through song lyrics. Mm -hmm. Anyway, if you have a song lyric that you think describes your life accurately, go ahead and send it in. We're at Livewire Radio out there on Twitter and Facebook. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Livewire. A huge thanks to our guests, Dylan Marin and Brittany Davis. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sepchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And our marketing manager is Paige Thomas. Our house band is Mike Gamble, Pony, A.L. Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. And Kataro Chavez is our intern. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Megan Millard of Portland, Oregon, and Brett Sherman of Happy Valley, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire team. Thank you for listening. 
and we will see you next week. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.